We come now to the book of Thessalonians. And if the Lord wills, then I can go beyond the first introductory chapter here. But this introduction is truly a a condensed introduction filled with much doctrine, yet an introduction nonetheless. So here now, the reading of God's word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now, seeking to understand your word, we pray that you would open our ears so that we can hear and understand. Give us eyes that see what you have revealed, and give us minds that understand what you would say to all of us today. We ask this in the name of your Son, our great mediator. Amen. Please be seated. So some background to begin with, with the, uh, the, the first letter to the Thessalonians, uh, to, to get people on board with where is Paul at in his ministry. Well, this is going to be part of his second missionary journey. And if you hearken back to Acts chapter 15, you'll see that they had recently just had the Jerusalem Council. And as part of the Jerusalem Council, they sent out both Paul and Barnabas, but they added two others. Saul, I'm sorry, Silas and Barsabbas, to go carry forth the decree that came from the presbytery, from the council as it gathered together there in Jerusalem. So they had just left. They had gone to Antioch to begin in carrying out that message there. And while there, uh, shortly after delivering this message, uh, they rearranged who the ministers would be and where they would go. Both Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. And so Paul ended up taking Silas with him. And they continued out, and they began to strengthen the churches. And that was the goal of this, this going out forth from Jerusalem, was to strengthen the previous churches that had been established 
and to go forth and see how they were doing, to uh, bolster them uh, in that. So as they continued on in this mission, uh, Paul ended up picking up Timothy in Lystra. They, uh, that was in the region, region of Galatia. Continuing on, they picked up another straggler, Luke. Uh, and you'll see the tone change into Acts chapter 16, where now he is all of a sudden with them in their ministry. And so then they proceed on from there, but a direction had changed now in the ministry. Paul, and even now Silas with him, had a plan, but that plan was changed. They tried to go to a certain area, and the Lord said no. And they tried to go to another area, the Lord said no. And so eventually the Lord opened up to them a new area of ministry, and through a dream, sent Paul to the area of Macedonia. So where is Macedonia? There is still an area known as Macedonia today, and it's in that same general area, but most people would know it as Greece. Uh, The Macedonian area is going to be the northern end of Greece, so along the northern edge of the sea. The rest of what you think of Greece as it comes down is going to be the region of Achaia. So when you see in Paul's letters that it's to the Macedonians and to Achaia, it's all of that Greek peninsula. So what we see is, as they move there, this is their opportunity to go to Philippi. And we see in Acts chapter, as it moves from 15 to 16 all the way into 17, that they have the opportunity to minister in Philippi, and they see great works there. But what they also see is great tumult. And so Paul and Silas uh, land themselves in prison. And shortly thereafter, we see the Philippian jailer converted, and he and his family baptized. They move on from there, and this is where they get to Thessalonica. And so this is where we're, we're our first introduction to this new fledgling church here. And it truly is a new church. Because we see that they preached for a total of three Sabbaths, reasoning with them. And shortly after preaching with them for merely three Sabbaths, they had to run out of town again and fled to Berea. So there was not much time to establish this new church. Once leaving Berea, they eventually went south to Athens. And in Athens is where they sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to continue the ministry there. So there was a slight pause in the opportunity to be with them, but then the group of three sent one back to continue to work with them. Paul then eventually goes on to Corinth, which is still in that peninsula, uh, but leaves Silas and Timothy behind in Athens. So it's in the time of Corinth is where we see Paul then writing this letter. So Timothy has now been there, left, gone back, and ministered there, and left again, and has now rejoined Paul in Corinth to give him the update on what's going on. And it's from that context that we see this letter now written back to the church in Thessalonica. Realize this would have been one of the very first books written by Paul, most likely right after the book of Galatians. So he had not gone through and written many of the letters that we see at this time yet. So these are the first opportunity. He's still on the road. Uh, He's not in his prison time where he has more opportunity to write more letters. Uh, This was a, a letter of encouragement as well as a letter of uh, giving some instruction to the church at Thessalonica. So as we see, the church there, it was founded in a very short period of time, only three weeks. Yet what we'll see 
is that it was a very strong church. It was not strong because the people there were old and mature in the faith. It was strong because the gospel was proclaimed and the gospel went forth in power there. So despite some of the persecution that you'll see, for in Philippi and at Thessalonica, there was much persecution that was going on. It still stayed strong, and it was still encouraged by the various ministers that came and ministered to there, such as Timothy. But you'll see as the the book goes on that sin was cropping up there, uh, but it was not nearly to the level of what Paul was seeing, for example, in Corinth where he was writing this letter from. So as you look at this, that's one of the reasons that you'll see that the introduction here focuses not right into some of the problems that are going on. The very beginning is going to go into giving thanks for what God has done and is doing in this church there. So as we look at things, we can see, starting in verse 1, that it was Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy that were doing this. This letter was coming from all three of them. And if you'll notice the pronouns throughout, it's filled with we, 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 R, R, R. Paul knew this. He was ministering alongside of Silvanus and Timothy. Now, Silvanus, if you haven't caught the connection, is the same as Silas. It's the same man that was sent out from Jerusalem shortly after the Jerusalem Council. It says in Acts chapter 15, verse 32, that he had the gift of prophecy. So he was actually commissioned by the presbytery to go out and to minister. Now, his original ministry was slightly different than this. And so you can see that it it changed through the power of the Holy Spirit. But he was commissioned nonetheless. We'll see in Corinthians that he also preached right alongside Paul there. I mentioned earlier he was jailed together at Philippi with Paul. And in Acts 17, verse 4, it says, the converts were said to have joined both Paul and Silas. Now, Timothy, Timothy was much younger in the faith. As mentioned, he picked them up along the way. And, and lest you think that when we, the, the, these apostles uh, and prophets, as they pick someone up along the way, this isn't quite going from Uh, Atlanta to Houston, having a layover, picking someone up, and going on to the West Coast. When you calculate out the mileage on this, there was a lot of, as Marion and I have talked about it, the windshield time, except they didn't have the windshields. They were doing a lot of walking time. So even though he just recently picked Timothy up, there was much discipling going on on that foot time from point A to point B, not to mention if this was the first time even back in Jerusalem, we're talking over a 1,000 miles of foot time with Silas to be with Paul. So this isn't a quick get to know one another and then go serve alongside them. This is months of walking together. Well, Timothy, though younger in the faith, like I said, just joined them prior to the Macedonian call. He was sent by Paul and Silas, back to Thessalonica in order to minister. So though young in the faith, Timothy at least had enough discipling and was elevated to the position where he was at least able to minister on his own back at this church. He's considered, as 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 2 says, as a minister of God. 
So each of these men had their own unique gifts, their personalities, and their backgrounds. And God orchestrated to put all three of them together to do this work in this particular church. So it brings us to one of our first application points as we think through what is our philosophy of missions as a, as a church body. And there's a church body beyond just the church body here at Heritage. How do we do missions? And what do we see from this? Well, of note, you can see that the mission here was a particular mission sent out by the presbytery. It was they needed to get out the consensus that had been come to at the Jerusalem Council and go out with the, the, the parallel ministry of go out and strengthen the churches that had already been established. So that was their particular mission. Now, yes, they did divert and they changed uh, missions on the road because it was direct intervention by the Holy Spirit, but they had a plan and the plan was coordinated amongst those in the leadership of the church. They worked together as a team, but how they worked was different. They each had their own different strengths and gifts, which is why you see sometimes it will be Paul there, other times they would send Timothy because Paul was needed elsewhere. And oftentimes we see that as very different than some of the modern-day missions. Oftentimes today you're not going to see the missions sent out in teams such as this. You'll often see the short-term trips with no real vision. There's nothing wrong with a short-term trip. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had a short-term trip in Thessalonica. It was a three-week missions trip, and they were out of there. But their vision was to establish the church. Their vision was to, even then, to go back and follow up with these churches, to ensure that they were strengthened, to go back and to make sure that God's word was not being maligned in these various locations. So those are some of the things we need to be aware of as we're looking at how are we involved in missions at the individual level and as we look and seek as a church on how to be involved in missions. Yes, we do need to let the Holy Spirit be able to direct that, and it should be allowed to, to make changes as we go, but it should be very clear when that happens. You'll notice that the missions should be primarily done by men called to and equipped for that particular calling. And expect that part of the plan in those missions should be to go out and regularly visit back with them to ensure that the churches there are being built up. So, as we see this particular mission church, why was this particular one in Thessalonica so effective? Well, it was likely as effective as it was because the Holy Spirit orchestrated it. All of these particular details that were worked out could not have been done in and of themselves had they done this. You'll note that it was already a synagogue there. So they went and they ministered on three recurring Sabbaths. So there was part of the established covenant people of God throughout thousands of years that had moved into that region and was at least there. You had that going for them. There were already many worshiping Greeks. They were the God-fearing Greeks. So, yes, they, they were coming along into the Jewish tradition, but they were at least accustomed to this. Had that not happened, had this just been a, a random act of missions, would it have survived 
with only three weeks and that limited opportunity that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had in this? Most likely not. So you can see God's orchestrating hand as he's preparing this. And so because of this amazing work that the Holy Spirit had worked here, this is why, as we move into verse 3, that Paul gives thanks. He sees what an amazing thing has been accomplished, that this church was still in existence, this church was still thriving, despite the fact that they had been there for so little of a time. Now, verse 3, we note that Paul gives thanks for three specific things. It says he gives thanks for the work of faith, the labor of love, and patience of hope. So with each of those things that he's giving thanks for, hopefully you can pick up the the hint at that. Because again, where is he writing this from? It's from Corinth. And if you hearken back over to 1 Corinthians 13, the three things that he gives thanks for there and that we need to strive for are faith, hope, and love. So you're seeing the parallels of his ministry in Corinth now being ministered to this new church in Thessalonica. Now you'll note that with each of these things, faith, hope, and love, that Paul combines it with an extra word. This extra word here for each of these is an action word. And so it's by these actions that the missionaries, these three, will actually remember what's going on in Thessalonica. We see first with faith. What is it paired with? Works. And just as Paul writes later in Ephesians, he says we're saved by a faith. But as we've read about, it's a faith that works. It's a gift given from God. So this gift, when God gives us a spiritual gift, as Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, faith is one of those spiritual gifts. And so as we're given a gift, the gift was not ever intended to be packaged up, internalized, and kept to oneself. The gift was meant to go out and do something. And so Paul was expecting that, and Paul was seeing that in the church in Thessalonica. The, the gift that they had been given was doing things. It was going forth and exhibiting much fruit. He then brings up the, the labor of love. Now, I'll slow down on this because I know many of the adults know of this, the, the five love languages by Gary Chapman. But many of the children are like, what? What are the five love languages? There is a, a premise out there that love doesn't exhibit itself without tangible actions. And the five things that, and people respond to these in different ways. But the five ways that people typically show love to one another would be speaking words of love. It comes through communication. Serving one another. So it's different acts. Giving of gifts. Things that are done. Spending time with someone. And offering physical touch. So love, even in these the concepts here, goes beyond just a mental emotion. Love exhibits itself here. And so you can see why Paul is addressing it, that it's their labor of love. They're working at loving one another. They're exhibiting this not simply internalizing it and saying, yes, I love you. And then finally we see with hope, 
how it waits patiently. So when I say waits patiently, you think, Chris, you've got this all wrong. There were two actions. This is waiting patiently. That's not an action. And I will argue with you that waiting patiently is probably one of the hardest actions to actually accomplish. It's much easier to build a house, to dig a ditch, to go to work five days a week than it is to wait patiently. It is definitely something that requires an action and it is something that's visibly being able to be seen. If you've ever seen someone who has that gift, who, who very, does that very well and knows how to wait patiently, you'll notice a completely different countenance about them. So with all these physical evidences of their faith, hope, and love, Paul gives thanks. And as he gives thanks and he sees these evidences, it then gives rise and and gives indication of their election. As we go to verse 4, they give thanks here and treat all of the audience as elect. Whoa, time out here. How how can Paul, Silas, and Timothy do this? How can they, they treat them as elect? How can they say, we know of your election here? Well, he can do it in a way knowing how God works. He knows that he can treat the bride of Christ as elect. But at the same time, he can also know that, yes, there may be false brethren among the elect. And he treats them as such. As you read in Galatians 2, verse 4, says, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in. Now, if you'll note Paul's theology of this, he still calls them brethren. They're false brethren. So he knows that, yes, there may be wolves in and amongst various churches, but he can still, by their evidences, know that the church, by and large, is the church, is Christ's bride, and can do that with an assurance and with confidence. So it's not an infallible confidence. It's not a, you you can't take it to the extreme and just because Paul said that, that yes, 100% of the church at Thessalonica was going to heaven. That's not the theology he's preaching there. But at the same time, we don't have to have a theology of doubt. We can see the evidence that God has worked in these people and was working in them. Now, oftentimes Presbyterians can get a bad name for how we deal with election. Uh, just recently, we, we dealt with the Merrill controversy. And so if you'll remember, as we were going through that, there was actually discussion of why bother preaching to those who are not elect. It's, it's a waste of time. It even goes so far as you'll see if you've read one of the recent Babylon Bee articles that they've recently developed a new electometer. It thus saves time for all the Calvinists out there so they don't have to waste their time on ministering to those who are not elect. Now, obviously, that's tongue-in-cheek, but that's the impression oftentimes that, that Presbyterians have. So we need to be aware of that as, as we understand what is the right view of election. We don't know who God has called, but we do see the evidences of it. And so we can treat it, as Paul does, treat those people as brethren. Paul also advises us elsewhere, make your calling and election sure. So there is that aspect of work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, all of this, 
that we've gone over came about in a very short period of time, in a mere three weeks. So what you need to see from this is it is truly evidence of the power of the gospel in this. So we move to verse 5. It says that, well, what you see there, that this power, it seems to initially, because it's in a different clause from the Holy Spirit, it says that uh, there's a power and then there's the Holy Spirit. But what you need to see underlying that is that it is really all together. It says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So there are some who think that the, the power is distinct in and of itself from the Holy Spirit. But I'll argue that underlying this, all three of those things are supposed to be read together in conjunction. It's with the power. Where does that power come through? And by. With and by the Holy Spirit. And how does it come? With much assurance. So as we see the gospel power going forth, the Holy Spirit working here, it not only works, it works in a way that gives the people much assurance. Then you can see that this, this triad here parallels what we just saw previously with faith, hope, and love, back up in verse 3. And what you'll also notice that the thing that each needs in order to be effective is right here. Hope needs assurance. Love needs the Holy Spirit. And faith needs that power. So we'll come back to that portion in just a moment here. But as the gospel went forth, in addition to bringing out that tangible fruit that they could actually see, it also led them to using tangible means for their equipping and sanctification. So moving on to verses 6 and 7. It says here that they became followers not only of Christ, but also of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. It didn't just stop there and say, you've become a follower of the Lord. It says you became followers of us and of the Lord. So he understands that we're naturally going to be followers of that which we see. And he's not saying not to. Fathers and mothers, you're naturally going to be an example for your children. You're a tangible example that they should look up to. Elders and deacons are going to be tangible examples to the flock. It would be wrong-headed to think that we should only follow what our understanding of Christ is and not see that God has worked in people to give us tangible representations of how his gospel is working. And Paul alludes to this later in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 to 16. He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. He says later in the same book, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So of note, don't get me wrong, don't imitate your, your, your parents, your elders, and other role models 
that God has worked in. Don't imitate their sin, but imitate how they deal with their sin when they confess their sin to one another. Imitate that. When they're humble, imitate that. When they stamp out pride, imitate that. In Hebrews 6, 11 through 12, it also says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So when you see someone that has that patience, can endure, can patiently wait in hope, imitate that. That is truly a challenge. As a follower of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as well as the Lord, through the times of trials there, they then became examples to the rest of the region. By what they had done, the word of God had sounded forth. Not just what they believed, it's by what they had done. So in verse 8, where it says they sounded forth, the Greek word here is basically the same word as echo. So if you put that into context, it would functionally say, for from you, the word of the Lord has echoed forth, has echoed out. So where did that come from? The word of the, the, word of the Lord came to them through the preaching of the gospel, through Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And it's immediately gone forth and echoed right back out. It's echoed out through their actions. So much so that in this short period of time, it's already gone forth throughout this entire region, all the way down to Corinth. So the question for us is how does God's word echo forth in us? How does it go into us and then echo out into the world? Are we like a, a black hole that absorbs all light, holds it all inside, and it never sends it forth? Or do we take what God has, has blessed us with, this power that's working in us through the gospel? Does it lead to a transformed life? Does it then flow out in our actions, and does the whole community in Hickman County and Dixon County and Perry County and Lewis County, do they all then see what God is working in us. The faith that God gives us works. Our love labors. And our hope is patient. So then Paul concludes the first chapter to the Thessalonians with some foreshadowing of some of the other topics he's going to be addressing with them shortly. Namely, turning from idols, and both serving the living and true God, as well as waiting for his son from heaven. So as we move to verse 9, it says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turn from God, from idols, to serve the living and true God. So this was a great success story. They turned from idols. They turned and served the living and true God. And they did this in a short period of time. But again, how did God work this? Through the power of his Holy Spirit. The majority of these converts here were Greeks. And so you can see some of the background with this. Yes, there were probably, and most assuredly, idol worship you know, with the Jews who were not believing. They did not have a full understanding. So as they turned, yes, there were Jews who turned from idols. 
But I think he's really addressing here what the Greeks were going through. This was a very common thing in the Greek culture to have these idols. And to see that is to truly see how the Holy Spirit was working. Now, along with the idol worship, and we'll get to this in in subsequent opportunities, moral laxity was going to be prevalent amongst the Greek culture. And so he alludes to it here, but he still sees that so much had been done. So much positive had already been wrought in such a short period of time. So the gospel here was working with power. It wasn't just a bare academic lecture that Paul, Silas, and Timothy went and gave. It wasn't a Paul was the great orator and had to be able to convince them. Paul, Silas, and Timothy each simply had to do what God had commanded them to do in the timing that God had commanded them to do it. And the gospel is what went forth. The word of God went out and did this great work. And so God uses this power of the gospel. And we know it as we see the fruit that gets exhibited here. And we always have to remember, though, that that election, that that underlying love that God displays to his people, it's not caused by that fruit. The gospel is what goes out to his elect and works in them. Then they just exhibit that fruit, not the other way around. And God uses his ministers in various ways and in various callings to bring that about. So what application does it have for us today? To the church that God's established here, a heritage church, here in Hickman County. Well, he's still ordained that his word will go forth. So my job today, Pastor Lovett's job, Keith, and any other future elders that are out there and ministers of the gospel, that's all we're commanded to do, to proclaim God's word, to pray for the saints, to pray for God's people. We don't convince people. What I'm doing up here will not convince any of you. What I'm doing here is in faithful obedience to God's word. God will work that in those that need to hear it, both for our initial conversion and all throughout our sanctification. It's the same thing they did 2,000 years ago. It keeps on going day after day. My job isn't to win souls for Christ. My job is to proclaim God's word. The gospel wins souls for Christ. So the gospel is powerful and living and active. As you're able to meditate on at the, the opening meditation of the service today from Hebrews, it is what brings about great hope and assurance. Now, we talk about this gospel, this gospel going forth, all that it's done. But lest we forget, what is that gospel? It's not a, a, a ball of light that goes out and, and, and hits people and, and converts them. It's the word of God. It, it is the great news of what he's done. And he proclaimed it throughout all of Scripture. The gospel is not new to the New Testament. God has promised throughout all of history to be our God, to set his love upon his people and to call them out of darkness 
And he foreshadowed that throughout all of the Old Testament. And so what Paul and Silas and Timothy are doing is simply proclaiming it, reminding them of this is what God proclaimed, and now pointing them to the actual person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came, who lived a sinless life, and who died, who died for the sins of his people, and who was raised by the power of God. And so it's this Christ that Paul, Silas, and Timothy proclaimed, and it's this message that was powerful. And as this message goes out, God is gracious to us because it is he works in your life. He not only gives you that new heart, but he gives you, through his Holy Spirit, that assurance of that salvation that he's wrought in you. And so trust in Christ in that. So our biggest problem today is that we simply just don't believe this promise. He says he's going to do it. For 6,000 years, he said he's going to do this. And yet, for 6,000 years, people have not believed him. And everything he's ever said has always come true. So we don't believe that the gospel goes out with power. It's evidenced oftentimes by our timidity in going out and sharing our faith, whether with our neighbors or even from pulpits around the country. We're afraid that what we say, people might laugh or scorn. We still have a mentality that we're trying to convince someone, whether of their sanctification or of their initial belief in Christ. But the gospel is what goes forth. Be obedient to that word. We oftentimes don't receive the word and act upon it. And so as the word is proclaimed, we're again timid. We don't go forth and and allow Christ to work in you, to change whatever area of life that needs to be changed. His word will go forth. It will sharpen you in whatever that area might be. It's not for a minister to necessarily find every area. The gospel will do that. God's word going forth will convict you. And we don't imitate those that Christ has placed in our lives in order to train us up in Christ. In pride, we often do that, and we say, I don't, I don't need them. I don't need my father or my mother. I don't need my elders. I don't need those godly men. I think it's important in a, a mentoring process that every person in whatever their walk of life always should have at least someone that they're being mentored from and someone that they are mentoring. You'll have your peers that you may be in the same walk of life. But if you ever get to the point where you don't have a mentor, whether you're 20, 40, 60, or 80 years old, you no longer are using the means that God has given you. God has always given someone older and more mature in the faith. Seek them out. So God does answer our cries to him when we call upon him. He makes good on his great promise that he will be our God, that we'll be his people. For we are a people that was not his people. As Hosea writes, uh, I love the example with Lo-Ami. He gives them a son named Not My People so that the people could see that is us. We were a people that were not his people, and yet he calls us his people, for it's he that works this in us. We're undeserving of his great mercy. 
Lo Ruhama. No mercy. For God is not obligated to show us mercy. And yet he shows us great mercy. So God doesn't give us a spirit of fear or timidity. But he gives us the spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. In addition, God gives us visible things. We've talked about the the role models, whether parents, elders, older men in the faith, older women in the faith, lest I neglect that. We we look at what a wonderful ladies' meeting that we have. This is a, a, a prime opportunity for older women to disciple younger women. We have men's meetings where older men can disciple younger men, including even the young men. Use those. But God also gives us the sacraments. We're going to see both of them today. He gives us baptism. In this baptism that we're going to see baptisms later this afternoon, we've seen last week what God promises to do for his people. And at times, just as in Philippi prior to Thessalonica, we see what God promises that he has already done, as in the Philippian jailer, and what he will do if he had not already done it in the Philippian jailer's family. But in both, we see what God is doing in visible form. We can observe it. It's not just head knowledge. And God gives us this bread and this wine set before us. We see how God is working, how he has given his life, his body, and his blood to us. And so we see this, and we know more of our risen Savior. So give thanks for what God has done through the power of the gospel. Give thanks that he has worked out so great a salvation. Give thanks, and with great assurance, know that our covenant God is working all these things out for our good, and for his glory. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, you have sent forth your word with power through the Holy Spirit and have given us much assurance. Yes, as we look around and see how you have established this church and all of your church throughout of his, the times of history, we see how you have given good gifts to us, faith, hope, and love. And you give us gifts that are effectual, gifts that go forth from us and edify one another. Give all of us hearts that believe and act upon your gospel. For apart from your regenerative work, this good news would fall upon deaf ears. But your word is living and active, and it penetrates our souls. It brings to life those you have called, and it does so without fail. Use this body, Lord, to echo back and sound forth your word to Hickman County and the surrounding areas so that we too may be examples to all of Middle Tennessee who believe. And for those who may be here that have not had hearts that are regenerated, we do pray, Lord, that you would work in them, even now, to give them new life. Give them ears that can hear and eyes that can see and cause them, like those whom you called in Thessalonica, to work out their faith, to labor in love, 
and to patiently hope for you. Turn them from their idols. Cause them to serve you, the true and living God. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for all that you do. We ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the word incarnate. Amen.